0: All right. Amen. Good morning. If you would turn to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2. We want to continue looking at what the Lord has told us about the birth of his son. One of the challenging things about um, Christmas time is the fact that the story is so familiar to us. And therefore, we can kind of overlook the significance of it and not feel really the, the weight of what has happened. And so it's always good for us to look at the story again and pray that the Lord would help us to see the significance of it. Uh, in 1 John, it tells us that if we believe in the name of the Son of God, we can know that we have eternal life. And to believe in the name doesn't simply mean that I believe that this person was born 2,000 years ago and his name was Jesus. It means that I understand and trust in who and what he was. And so that's why the first week we talked about what John in John chapter 1 says, that the baby that was born on Christmas Day was God made flesh. And then the next Sunday we talked about the fact that he was born of a virgin, as it says in Luke and, and Matthew, which means he was the perfect man. So he was both perfect God and perfect man. And uh, today we want to talk about the fact that this perfect God and perfect man who came on Christmas Day is the promised Savior. And then next week we'll talk about that he's the promised King. And so when we think about what it means to believe in the name of Jesus, it's to believe that he is God, that he's also perfect man, fully God, fully man, that he's the savior that we all need, and that he is the Lord that we are all to bow before and honor and worship. The grace we need is to see beyond just what's visible, just the story itself. We need to see the person who is truly being revealed to us in this story. And so in Luke chapter 2, I'd like to read the first part of the chapter, and we'll talk about different things that are in the chapter as a whole. So let me begin in verse 1. It says, Now in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. This was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone was on his way to register for the census, each to his own city, a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. When the angels had gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds began saying to one another, Let us go straight to Bethlehem then, for all that they had heard and seen, just as had been told them. This is the word of God. Let's pray again. Father, we just ask that you would help us to see afresh and anew what is true, uh, what you've done for us, and we pray that you would apply it to our hearts, that we would trust you and love you and honor you this Christmas season as we should, and that we'd find true joy in you more and more. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So what we want to talk about this morning is how Luke presents the gospel uh, regarding the birth of Christ, because each of the gospel writers does something different. They don't all tell the same story in the same way. And so we're going to look this morning at how Luke uh, tells it, and what I'd like to do is I'd like to talk a little bit about some of the carols that we sing. We're going caroling tonight for those who can join us. And I want to talk a little bit about how the carols that we sing each Christmas are meant to emphasize certain things about the story of Christmas, about the story of Christ. And obviously the first thing that we can highlight that Luke emphasizes in uh, his gospel is that Jesus was born, that it really happened, that indeed that it was a, an, a historical Event, but first of all, he highlights that we should say that the birth of Christ is good news. If you notice in verse 10, the angel comes and says to the shepherds, "Do not be afraid, for I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people." It's interesting in the other parts of the Bible, it says things like bright eyes, glad in the heart, good news puts fat on the bones. Now I always thought it was the candy and all the other things at Christmas time that put fat but now I know it's really the good news of Christmas that causes us to gain weight at Christmas time. <laughs> Obviously he's talking figuratively there but it does mean that good news is health producing whereas uh, bad news and worries and anxieties can actually affect you physically. But God actually intends the good news of the gospel also to affect us in all kinds of ways, to be a blessing to us in all kinds of ways. In another place in Proverbs, it says, like cold water to a weary soul, so is good news from a distant land. And the reality is, in the day and time in which Jesus came, it was a very dark time. Uh, The people in Israel were under the oppression of the Roman government, and it was not... Um, a fun time to be a part of the nation of Israel at that time. And that's why it says in Isaiah chapter 9, the people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. You shall multiply the nation, You you shall increase their gladness. They will be glad in your presence as with the gladness of harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. And it goes on to say, for a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. Now, it's good news for us today to realize that the government of the world doesn't rest upon uh, President Biden or the leader of China or any other government leader. Uh, The reality is, every day I read in the news and I see things that... Uh, apart from my faith in God and in Christ, would disturb me greatly. Uh, to know that there are things going on in government that I had never even imagined, and that the trustworthiness of people and leadership is um, not great. Not great. Even at best, it's we cannot put our hope in men. And yet, uh, the good news of the gospel is that Jesus came, and he is someone that we can find Um, good news to rejoice about every day. And so what we find here in the story is that um, last week, Joseph realizes through the testimony of the angel that Mary is pregnant because of the work of the Holy Spirit, so he takes her to be his wife. And evidently, uh, they began, began living as husband and wife at that point, but he a virgin until jesus was born but at some point they had to leave and go to bethlehem to be registered uh, for the taxation and so we see them in this passage traveling to bethlehem um, in the providence of god Uh, they are in bethlehem where the messiah was supposed to be born which evidently they weren't planning on going to bethlehem it does not indicate but god made sure they were where they needed to be when they needed to be there and jesus was born And then as you read on in the rest of the chapter, you see on the eighth day he was circumcised and they took him to the temple and they offered a sacrifice, just as the Old Testament says that they should. And there in the temple, Simeon met them and he was waiting for the Messiah before he was going to die. And then Anna met them and both Simeon and Anna go about telling people about the birth of the Messiah. And then that... The latter part of the chapter is it jumps ahead uh, 12 years to Jesus being taken to the temple when he was 12 years old to participate in the Passover, taken to Jerusalem. They celebrate the Passover. His mom and dad leave and leave him behind. Don't realize that he's left behind. If there's anybody you don't want to leave behind, it's the Messiah. It's God in the flesh, you know, and you're the parents. Talk about uh, parental guilt. Uh, so you're, you're entrusted with uh, Jesus and you leave him behind and, and yet they come back and they find him in the temple asking questions and listening to the religious leaders and what he says is and the first words recorded of Jesus are, did you not know that I had to be about my father's business or in my father's house, depending on how it's translated. The very first words, recorded words of Jesus. Did you not know I had to be Doing what my father, not Joseph, but my father God, has called me to do. And it's in the midst of the temple, which, obviously, the temple is the place of sacrifice. And so the whole chapter weaves together uh, the importance of why Jesus was born and the implications of it for us. And so we want to talk about that this morning. One of the um, songs that we sing at Christmas time is Go Tell It on the Mountain. And that actually was a song that was a Negro spiritual. And we didn't even know about it until, um, I guess, early in the last century, in the 1900s. I'm not sure exactly when. But a man uh, began collecting, as best he could, uh, Negro spirituals, which weren't typically written down. They were just passed orally along. But somehow he was able to find out uh, the words... Uh, to various Negro spirituals, and one of them was, Go Tell It on the Mountain. And the beginning of this song says, Go tell it on the mountain, over the hills and everywhere, go tell it on the mountain that Jesus Christ is born. Now, the reality is, whenever a child is born, and we're happy for the parents, we're happy for the grandparents, we say, like, you know, Hope just had a baby, Sylvia Joy... And we're happy for her and Gabe, and we're happy for the grandparents, and yet most of us don't sit here and think, wow, there's going to be some great things coming to me because of that birth. But we're happy for the parents, we're happy for uh, the grandparents and other people who will be immediately affected by that. But what we find uh, celebrated at Christmas time is that we're not simply saying, oh, I'm glad Mary and Joseph had a baby 2,000 years ago we're celebrating the good news of a child that was born whose implications and impact was going to go far beyond his immediate earthly family. And that's why it says in Isaiah 52, how lovely on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who announces peace and brings good news of happiness, who announces salvation and says to Zion, your God reigns. So what kind of good news are we talking about? Well, Isaiah says it's good news of happiness. It's good news that the child that's been born has been born to bring you and me true, real happiness. Not happiness in material things that we might get at Christmas time, but happiness that comes from a reconciled relationship with God and fellowship with God, fellowship with the one who created us for himself. And so that's where we start when we think about Christmas is that the angels proclaimed that Jesus came and the coming of Jesus is truly good news. Well, let's look at, look at some other things that Luke has to say about uh, this coming of Jesus and the good news of it. And the next thing that I'd like to highlight is Jesus. Wa- uh, excuse me, Luke was a great historian. And even secular historians will look at what Luke wrote and acknowledge that he was very meticulous in the things that he wrote, which we would expect, being believers, that the Bible is the word of God. But people looking at it who aren't even believers will acknowledge many times when they're um, objective that Luke was very meticulous in the dates and the people that he included. And so we see in his story that he talks about different time references and different people to give us an idea of when Jesus was born. So it says in the first two verses, now in these or in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. This was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. So when we ask ourselves, so when was Jesus born? When did this good news take place? And the easiest thing to say is, at just the right time, because that's what Paul will later on say. But we can also get a little more close to the time by looking at the kinds of things that Luke says when he talks about Caesar Augustus. We know he reigned from 27 B.C. to 14 A.D. He mentions Quirinius taking a census, and we know that uh, he probably took a census right about 8 B.C. or so that may have taken as long as a couple years to complete And so when you put that together with the fact that Herod, which we'll talk about him next week, died on April 4th, 4 B.C., we know that Jesus had to be born before April 4th, 4 B.C., and so he could have been as old as two years old, or he might have been only a few months old. So that's why a lot of people believe that, um, even though it sounds odd that Jesus Christ was born in B.C., it's one of those dating issues. But he was probably born six uh, in the year 4, 5, or 6 BC in that area. We don't know if it was December 25th. A lot of people think it was just simply related to um, you know, trying to find uh, a date that would kind of compete with other secular or uh, pagan holidays. But there are some people who early on in the history of the church, even before... Uh, Christmas was the established holiday under Constantine, began talking about December 25th as the date of the birth. And so uh, is it possible that it was December 25th? It's possible. Do we know for sure? We don't know for sure. But the important part is it was a real historical event. It's not just a story. It's not just a myth. But it's something that really happened in time. And so we sing Hark! the Herald Angels Sing, which was written by Charles Wesley. And he was obviously a Methodist leader and preacher as well. Evidently he was walking to church one Christmas uh, in London. And uh, the inspiration for this song uh, came to him. The first verse actually originally was, Hark! how all the welkin, welkin rings. Anybody know what a welkin is? Hark! All the Wilkin rings, glory to the king of kings. Uh, well, later on, George Whitfield changed that as they put the, t- the uh, poem to music, and he changed it to Hark the Herald Angels Sing, glory to the newborn king. A welkin, welkin, um, is actually a vault of heaven. So he's talking about how the heavens are singing. Hark the heavens sing is what... Uh, charles wesley originally wrote and and um george whitfield probably looked at him and said what in the world is a welkin nobody knows what a welkin is i'm going to change this and so that's why we sing it like we sing it but it starts off obviously hark the herald angels sing glory to the newborn king peace on earth and mercy mild god and sinners reconciled then later on in the song it says christ by highest heaven adored christ the everlasting lord late in time behold him come offspring of a virgin's womb now you might think that saying uh, jesus came late he showed up late Uh, actually it refers to the fact that jesus was born in the last days because that's what it says in the old testament in the last days the messiah would come not that he was late he showed up late you know or mary was overdue or anything like that it was that he came In the last days. That's why if you read your Bible closely in the New Testament, it will say we are in the last days. Ever since Jesus came, we've been in the last days for 2,000 years. Meaning, we've been in the period of the coming of the Messiah who would come to establish heaven on earth. In Galatians 4, Paul says, But when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. So when the fullness of the time came. So Jesus came at the perfect time. A lot of us would say, why didn't he come when there was technology? When uh, Mary and Joseph could have whipped out their phones and filmed the birth. You know, we, we sort of wish it was like that so we could have some you know vivid documentation, um, but God said, "No, the perfect time for Jesus was to come was two thousand years ago and and so Luke records it for us and tells us that it really happened. Well, the next thing is that he records he is he records where it happened, and the significance of verse four when he says. Joseph also went up from Galilee from the city of Nazareth to Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family of David. Bethlehem means house of bread, which later on Jesus will say that I am the bread of life. He who eats of me will uh, live forever. And the reality is, Jesus was born outside the big city and outside the prominent places. Um... Bethlehem was about five miles south of Jerusalem. And at the time that Jesus was born, there was probably only a hundred people that lived in that village. If you go there today, I think it's much bigger, probably much more cosmopolitan. Um, But there was a man who wrote the hymn, the carol, O Little Town of Bethlehem. Back in the 1800s, he went to visit Bethlehem. And at that time, it was still just a little village. And he wrote on horseback from jerusalem to bethlehem and he got there and he went to the area where the shepherds supposedly saw the angels and then he went to the church of the nativity and celebrated christmas eve there at that time and then a couple years later after coming back to the States, he wanted to write a song for the children in his church And he remembered his experience on that night in Bethlehem two years earlier. And he wrote the song, O Little Town of Bethlehem. And he gave the the words to an organist in his church. And he asked him to write a tune for it. And the man tried and tried. And on Christmas Eve, he went to bed um, realizing that he couldn't figure out a tune that would fit with the words. And then in the middle of the night, um, he woke up with a melody in his head. And he wrote the melody down, and it's the melody that we presently uh, use as we sing this song. And he told uh, the man who wrote the song, I think it was a gift from heaven. And so the song goes, O little town of Bethlehem, how still we see thee lie. Above thy deep and dreamless sleep the silent stars go by. Later on it says, How silently, how silently the wondrous gift is given. So God imparts to human hearts the blessings of his heaven. The thing that I want to highlight is it starts out, O little town of Bethlehem, which reminds us of Micah 5, verse 2, which says, But as for you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth were from long ago, from the days of eternity." The point is, Jesus was born out of the mainstream of life, so to speak. He was born in a place that most people would think, ah, nobody of any significance is going to come from that place. Uh, God probably isn't up to anything there. God is up to big things and big cities and those kinds of things where things are happening. You know, That's where God will really do something special. It reminds me of... Um, the Lord of the Rings and Tolkien, He, his key characters are little hobbits, weak little hobbits. And the destruction of evil comes through little weak hobbits. I think there's a big message there. Uh, in various ways, uh, God is always demonstrating his power and his strength by doing it through the weak and the despised and the things that we would not expect. And that's why when Jesus uh, multiplied the fishes, uh, they come to him and they say, we have five loaves of bread and two fish. What is this for so great a crowd? And Jesus multiplies the bread and the fish and he feeds 5,000 plus people. There's a song that Jen and I heard a while back Um, We normally think of, you know, we encourage each other to think big. You need to think big. The song actually says, think small or think little. Meaning, realize that the little things you do every day can be used in huge ways to glorify God and bless people. If you minimize everything but the big things, then you miss out on seeing God do wonderful things through the little things. And so the encouragement of Christmas is in part to recognize that the little things we do for each other in celebrating Christmas can be used in great and big ways to glorify God and to meet people's needs because that's actually how Christ was born into the world in light of where he was born. Next we see uh, the whole issue of how he was born in a sense, in another sense. And we could say he was born quietly and humbly, you notice in verses four and five, it says, "Mary, who was engaged to Joseph and was with child." It appears that at that point they were already living together as husband and wife, because legally they were husband and wife, but they had not consummated the marriage. And certainly there would be people who probably thought that uh, something um, wrong had taken place in Mary's life that Jesus was born under sus- suspicion. Suspicion of some, something that wasn't right about that relationship. And we see that he was born outside and in, outside um, the normal place that you would expect someone to give birth to a baby. There, there weren't the... Um, whatever they typically did to make women comfortable when they were having babies this didn't happen for jesus and in fact he was born uh, somewhere where animals were we don't know uh, people aren't sure if if this was a stable attached to an inn or a stable attached to a house or if it was a cave back behind the inn or back behind the house where animals would be kept but obviously there was a feeding trough there because that's what the manger was it's a place to feed animals and so wherever he was born it was a place that you would never expect to find a baby to be born. And he was born in a very humble way. And then later on, his parents take him to the temple to offer a sacrifice, and they offer the sacrifice of poor people. When it says in verse 24 that they offered a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons, it means that they were a poor couple. They didn't have a lot of money. And then it says later at the end of the chapter that after um, verse 39, actually, that after all that was done in the temple, uh, they left and went back to Nazareth. And Nazareth, as you recall in John chapter one, had the reputation of being a, an insignificant despised place because Nathaniel says, is there anything good that can come out of Nazareth? And so you, you would imagine that wouldn't God want to make Jesus appear glorious by letting him be born in a palace and letting him be born in a big city and letting him be born to rich people? And wouldn't, wouldn't everybody know about it? And yet God doesn't work that way. God didn't work that way. And so he was, very, he was born very quietly and very humbly, he came into the world, and that's why we see sing songs like "Silent Night," which was a song that was written after the Napoleonic Wars. And there was a lot of obviously death and strife, and and uh, terrible things had happened after those wars had ended. The man who wrote "Silent Night" uh, walked out one Christmas Eve, I think it was, and he looked out over his town. Uh, that was covered in snow and it was very quiet compared to the noise of the war and he wrote silent night holy night all is calm all is bright round yon virgin mother and child holy infant so tender and mild silent night holy night son of god loves pure light radiant beams from thy holy face with dawn Of redeeming grace it reminded me of Zephaniah 3 verse 17 which says the Lord your God is in your midst a victorious warrior he will exult over you with joy he will be quiet in his love he will rejoice over you with shouts of joy now the that phrase he will be quiet in his love is a difficult thing to translate and sometimes it's translated in different ways But one of the ideas that it could be trying to communicate is when it says God is quiet in his love for us, it's kind of like someone quietly going about his business. Meaning he's not making a big uh, announcement or a big hoopla about what he's doing. He's just quietly going about his business. So what did Jesus do on that first Christmas morn? He was born quietly. On a silent night, so to speak, and he quietly went about the business of loving us. He quietly loved us by showing up. And so when we sing about Son of God loves pure light, we're singing about God quietly coming into the world, almost silently coming into the world, and yet coming in love. And the reality is that's how he still works in our lives today. We want God to show up loud right? And it's great when he does show up loud in different ways. The reality is he is quietly loving us day in and day out, whether we recognize it or not. And that's exactly what happened 2,000 years ago on Christmas Day. Well, all of those details are meant to funnel us toward the most important things. And that brings us to the why of Jesus being born. If you Notice in verse 11, it says, For for today in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. So the purpose of Jesus' birth was to save. Now, obviously, the question is, save from what? And save who? In what way was he to be a Savior? Later on in verse 21, it says, And when eight days had passed before his circumcision, his name was then called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. We know from Matthew that Jesus means he would be called Jesus because he would save his people from their sins. That he was um, sent to be a savior from sin. And then later on, Simeon would say in verse 30, For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. I still uh, remember years ago when we had this um, celebration at Coast of Christmas time and different people dressed up and uh, Josh's dad, Dan, dressed up like Simeon. And I think we had the party at um, Lesson Sue Card's house. And all the people who were dressed up walked in and were introducing themselves and showing uh, who they were. And so Dan walks in as Simeon, and he says something along the lines of what we find here in Luke chapter 2, and then he just falls over. <laughs> and it was just incredibly funny. But that's the implication. Of what is going on in Luke chapter 2. is Because Simeon has been waiting for the Messiah to come. And the implication is clearly that that I might go to be with the Lord. And I'm just waiting to see the Messiah. Now we don't know how much longer he lived. We have no indication that he just fell over after that. Or anything like that. But I'll never forget that. Uh, but Simeon is rejoicing in the fact that God has sent The salvation that they've been waiting for. And the salvation that they've been waiting for was a salvation for both Gentiles and Jews. And yet we also see in this chapter that he was going to be a savior, not like what the Jews expected. They expected him to be a savior with a sword on his side and just killing the Romans and setting them free. That's the kind of savior they were looking for. That's the kind of savior that they wanted. But actually the Bible says in Luke chapter 2 that the sword wasn't going to be a sword at this point that Christ was wielding. It was going to be a sword that actually would pierce the heart of Mary. Because it goes on to say, um, later on in the chapter, in verses 34 and 35, Simeon talks to Mary and says, "...behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rise of many in Israel, and for a sign to be opposed." and a sword will pierce even your own soul to the end that thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. Probably even as the spear pierced Jesus' side, the sword pierced Mary's heart as she watched him from beneath the cross. But all of that was because Jesus came to be a savior through sacrifice. Now, a lot of people take issue with December 25th being the date that Jesus was born, Because they say, you know what? Shepherds wouldn't have been keeping flocks in the middle of winter like that. And yet, what appears to be the case is sometimes winter times can be pretty mild in that area of the world. And there are people who vacationed in that area of the world during that time and would say, we actually saw shepherds keeping flocks uh, at night during that season. Uh, But the point is, Um, they would keep flocks near Jerusalem in places like Bethlehem year-round for the sacrifices in Jerusalem. So the sacrifices would be needed year-round, regardless of what the temperature was or anything like that. And so the shepherds were likely shepherds who were guarding sheep that were going to be sacrificed in the temple. And so they were the first ones who heard about the birth of Christ. Because they represented, in a sense, the very purpose of why Jesus was coming. That he was coming to be a savior who would sacrifice himself to rescue people from their sin. Later on, it will talk about the feast of the Passover in verse 41. The only story that we have of Jesus as a child, um, beyond the birth stories, Is about him going to the temple during the feast of Passover. Why? Because he came to be the fulfillment of all that the Passover means. He came to be the sacrificial lamb. That's why he had to be in the father's house. Because he came to do what the father had called him to do. And he came to be a savior who would sacrifice himself to bring us joy. That's why it says that the angels praise God uh, it says the shepherds glorified and praised God, Simeon blessed God, Anna gave thanks to God. The whole story in Luke chapter two is people praising and thanking god and and what is the source of praise it's joy. Our praise comes from being filled with joy over what we 're singing about or or talking about, and so he came to bring great, great joy. And ultimately, that joy was meant to glorify God. That's why the angels said in verse 14, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. There's no doubt we should recognize that Jesus came to save people. But the glory doesn't go to people for him coming to save them. The go- glory goes to God in the highest. Because it wasn't because we deserved a savior to come and sacrifice himself for us. A lot of times, um, you know, in more romantic movies, you know, one of the characters will sacrifice themselves for the other character. And it's all because uh, this person is so valuable to them. There's nothing wrong with that. Uh, That's still commendable, but it'd be wrong for us to think that that's why Jesus sacrificed himself was because we are so valuable that he was willing to pay that price. When the reality is the glory of God was so valuable and the honor of God and the accomplishment of what God was going to do through all of that was truly valuable. It doesn't minimize or say we have no value at all being made in the image of God and certainly the fact that Christ died for us uh, is something that gives us infinite value because of his infinite value. And yet we would be wrong to think that somehow I deserve Christ to die for me. No, it was grace. It was grace that um, moved him to do what he did. And yet that grace, as we said before, the root of the idea of grace is that which brings joy. And so Christ comes graciously to die for sinners to bring us joy. And so one of the most popular Christmas carols is joy. To the world. And Isaac Watts wrote that song, at least wrote the words for it back in the 1700s. It was later on developed into the carol that we know because originally he was writing poems based on the Psalms. He never intended Joy to the World to be a song or to be a Christmas carol. He was just looking at what God wrote in the Psalms and he was writing poetry based on the psalms and in psalm 98 he wrote about joy based on psalm 98 and later on um, people developed that into a song and somehow we began singing it at christmas time and yet the song is really not about the first coming it's about the second coming and yet you can't separate the two in fact in the old testament those two things are merged together so many times Um, The prophecy refers both to the first and second comings of Christ together because they are inseparable. They're um, part A and part B, so to speak, and that's why we talk about the consummation of what Christ has done for us. The interesting thing about the song also is that um, some people uh, have the idea that maybe... Um, the person who put the song to music and and sort of put it together in a song form to be sung was actually doing it uh, to send a code to people for political purposes. Is rather rather interesting. Well, the reality is um, there are political implications to the song uh, because it says joy to the world the Lord is come, let Earth receive her king. Those have those words have political implications. Because in the first century uh, believers were being forced to give incense and devotion to Caesar. And they were being forced to say, Jesus, or excuse me, Caesar is Lord, or Caesar is King. And they refuse to do it. Why? Because Jesus is king. Jesus is king. And so ultimately the song acknowledges the kingship of Jesus and acknowledges that one day his kingdom will come. Heaven will come to earth. And though, so that's why it says, Joy to the world, the Lord is come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room, and heaven and nature sing goes on to say, No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow for as the curse is found, he rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and wonders of his love. So ultimately, when it talks about let no more sin and sorrow grow, it's talking about the second coming, bringing an end to sin and an end to sorrow which is the hope of the first coming, is that Jesus came, that ultimately that would take place. He would save us from all sin and all sorrow. That's why it says in Psalm 43, Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy, and upon the lyre I shall praise you, O God my God. Now why do I link that verse with this hymn? He says, Joy to the world, the Lord is come. So what's the joy? The joy is the Lord. Joy to the world, the Lord is come. So David says, God, my exceeding joy. So when we're singing about the joy, we're not just thinking about singing about the release and deliverance from sin and sorrow. That's a big part of it, but the biggest part of it is God himself is the joy that has come. He's the only one that can satisfy our souls. And obviously when you say our souls, the question is, who are we talking about? That brings us to the last point of Jesus was born for whom? And it's important that all of us realize that the message of Christmas is for everyone in one sense, but especially for those who acknowledge who Jesus is in this story in Luke chapter 2 we see that Jesus was born for those who were expecting him and those who weren't if you read all of chapter 2 you see Simeon was expecting the Savior Anna was expecting the Savior now some would argue that the shepherds were all probably godly men and they were all probably expecting the, the Messiah too well the Bible doesn't say that And the reality is, um, in that day and time, shepherds uh, all had a bad reputation. They were considered to be thieves and their testimony would not stand up in court because they assumed that they were lying whenever they talked. Now, does that mean there weren't any godly shepherds? No, there might have been some godly shepherds. But does that mean there had to be all godly shepherds? No, I don't think so. Why? Because Jesus didn't come for the godly. Jesus came for the ungodly. That's who he came for. He didn't just show up and say, let me announce my coming to those who are the most godly. Because that's what I came for. I came for the godly people. No, he came, actually came for the ungodly, which actually is all of us, regardless of how devout we might be. Regardless of how devout Simeon was or Anna was, she was they were still in need of a savior it says if you read the whole chapter that he was born uh, for the Jew and the Gentile Um, Simeon says, for my eyes have seen your salvation in in verse 30, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples. So in one sense, Jesus was born to the, the Jewish people. And many people would say the idea of the people refers to the people of Israel. But here Simeon Uh, enlarges that to the presence of all peoples. And then he goes on to say, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. So that the tenor of the chapter is, yes, Jesus was sent to the nation of Israel because he is their promised Messiah who would come from the seed of Abraham. And yet he wasn't to be limited to just the Jewish people, but was going to be a savior uh, for all people. But the interesting thing is, even though we have this kind of uh universal declaration of a Savior, still we have the acknowledgement that th- that He was sent especially to those who would receive Him by grace through faith. And that's why we find in verse 14 it says, The angels say, Glory to God in the highest And on earth, peace among men with whom he is pleased. Now, if you read the King James Version, which a lot of our carols will reference this version, it says, on earth, peace, goodwill toward men. And that's because um, there's some discrepancy over how to translate that and what the best manuscripts read. In one sense, it seems to be saying goodwill to men. In another sense, it seems to be talking about men of goodwill or favor to men, or men favored by God. And so the question is, what is it? The phrase literally is men of good pleasure. And the implication that many people draw from that is men of God's good pleasure. And that's why it's translated, men with whom he is pleased. Now, does that mean that the good news of the coming of Christ is for people who who are good and righteous and pleasing to God when it says men with whom he is pleased. No, that's not what it means. That would be misunderstanding the whole context in which it's said. What it means is, it does say in 1 Timothy 4, for it is for this we labor and strive because we have fixed our hope on the living God who is the Savior of all men. So so Jesus is the Savior of all men. But then it says, especially of believers. Which means in Jesus there's everything. There's sufficient in Jesus to save every single person. But Jesus actually only saves those who believe. Now, how does that relate to what it says in verse 14? On earth, peace among men with whom he is pleased. Well, at Jesus' baptism... God spoke from heaven and said, you are my beloved son and you I am well pleased. And then in Hebrews it says, without faith it is impossible to please God. So how do we please God? We please God by being pleased with Jesus. Which means, what does it mean to be pleased with Jesus? That depends on whether or not you understand that he came to save sinners. Sinners. And if you're pleased with the Savior that God sent, which is his Son, you're pleased with him in the sense that you receive him and you trust him and you rely on him as your Lord and your Savior, then peace be to you. Because God is pleased with you. Not because you fulfilled everything you're supposed to do, not because you've never sinned, but because you've received. And we know it's by grace have received the Savior who was sent for us. It's interesting we sing uh, the carol O come all ye faithful and um, the interesting thing about that is it starts O come all ye faithful, joyful and triumphant, O come ye, O come ye to Bethlehem. What is the implication of O come all ye faithful? Uh, does it mean, come all of you who've been faithful this week. Come all of you who've done what you should have done as a husband and a father, as a as a child, uh, as a worker, uh, as a citizen. Uh, come all of you who've been faithful to obey God, trust God, love God, and love people. Is that what it's saying? Probably not. The one who wrote this probably was talking about, come all all you who have faith, is probably what was being talked about. But there was a, a woman who, um, she was really struggling for a year and a half. She had a really hard um, year and a half, and she said, finances were stressful, I miscarried twins, and on top of it, I was battling a deep relational bitterness. She said her church was celebrating Christmas, and they were beginning to sing carols, And they began singing um, this song. And typically, she would be sort of leading the worship. She'd be part of the worship team. But she was so ashamed of where she was spiritually that she didn't sing that year. And they started singing, O Come, All Ye Faithful. And she said it clobbered her with a huge, great sense of guilt. She said, I remember hearing those words and thinking, I have been so unfaithful. My joy has dwindled, and I am triumphant, a triumphant failure. She said, I didn't sing the rest of the service. I drove home, my mind still churning. And she says, asked, she asked the question, is that really who is invited to come to Jesus, the faithful, the joyful, the triumphant? If so, then I am hopeless. She began to continue to pray and think about that. And the Lord brought to her mind Matthew 11:28. It says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And she wrote a poem based on that experience. And later on, uh, she, Lisa Clow and Bob Coughlin, wrote a Christmas song called, "O come all you unfaithful. And the name of the, the, the song goes like this. And hopefully, Lord willing, we'll actually sing it next Sunday or, um, as we celebrate it says O come, all you unfaithful, come, weak and unstable, come, know you are not alone. O come, barren and waiting ones, weary of praying, come, see what your God has done. Christ is born, Christ is born, Christ is born for you. O come, bitter and broken, come with fears unspoken, come, taste of His perfect love. O come, guilty and hiding ones. There is no need to run. See what your God has done. Christ is born. Christ is born. Christ is born for you. He's the lamb who was given, slain for our pardon. His promise is peace for those who believe. He's the lamb who was given, slain for our pardon. His promise is peace for those who believe. So come, though you have nothing, Come, he is the offering. Come, see what your God has done. Christ is born, Christ is born, Christ is born for you. Jesus said in Mark chapter 2, It is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Let me just conclude with this. Um, there's a little ditty called mary had a little lamb which actually is based on a true story about a little girl who brought her lamb to school or the lamb followed her to school it says mary had a little lamb whose fleece was white as snow and everywhere that mary went the lamb was sure to go it followed her to school one day which was against the rules it made the children laugh and play to see a lamb at school and so the teacher turned it out but still it lingered near And waited patiently about till Mary did appear. Why does the lamb love Mary so? The eager children cry. Why, Mary loves the lamb, you know. The teacher did reply. Let me apply this to Mary giving birth to Jesus. Mary had a little lamb whose life was white as snow. But everywhere that Mary went, her sin was sure to go. It followed her to school one day. And quickly broke the rules. She wanted to be free to laugh and play, but she could only play the fool. So the teacher turned Mary out. This filled her heart with fear. But the Lamb laid down his life for her, so that grace might then appear. Why does Mary love the Lamb so? The curious people cry. Why, the Lamb loves Mary, you know. The teacher did reply. Mary needed a spotless Lamb to take her sin away. We're all like Mary in our sin. So Jesus came on Christmas Day. Let's pray. Father, we thank you um, that you've given us a Savior in your Son. And that's what we celebrate at Christmas time. We celebrate a Savior from sin. Help us to rejoice in that, rest in that, find good news in that every day. And for those who have not yet received Jesus as a Savior for sin, the only Savior for sin, we pray that you grant them grace to do so even this day, even this Christmas season. We love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.